This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And last episode is also this episode, but we cut it in two parts because, as I said last time, it got so, so long. This is but we're back the to have longest episode of Winning <laughs> Slowly of all time story. this year. So we cut it in two. I'm Chris Kreicho. I'm Stephen Caradini. And we're going to jump. And we're about to have an argument. So that's where we cut it. We're going to jump right back go. in. Yeah, here we go. The ways that we think about this and shape the ways that we imagine what would it be like. Mm-hmm. What would cultural norms be? Right. Like, what would art look like? Well, you'd have a lot more local art. Mm-hmm. You could still get – you. you I, I can imagine that you would have a lot more local art because you would – if there was a decreased value on uh, transit and an increased ability to communicate effectively without transiting, whether that's any sort of technology that we can imagine, you would be able to – have meaningful artistic experiences around you and for the various types of artistic experiences that are non-replicable because there are those sorts of things Mm -hmm. you would be able to visit them in various ways that don't require flying this is already starting to happen with virtual reality and low virtual reality will be a lot different in 80 years like it'll be different if in the 60s they were imagining in fahrenheit 451 whole virtual reality sorts of rooms we're going to have different types of things. Whether or not virtual reality is good or not is a whole other thing. But I imagine that that's one way that things would change if we did indeed uh, place less of a priority on transit. By contrast, if we another way to come at that specific example might be to conceive of a world in which we've not embraced virtual reality be- because of its downsides and have invested heavily in means of transportation that are sustainable and perhaps fast that one could go visit a concert happening in Washington, D.C., if one lived in Colorado, and do this in a more sustainable way. And also that perhaps that might come to Colorado and there might be... Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So are you suggesting that the downsides of virtual reality might be worse than trying to create transcontinental sustainable travel. Oh yes. Yes. Because how do you figure? I think that some of the dynamics around virtual reality are apt to reinforce many of the very same terrible kinds of things that we already have in the mass communicative media context. But why? We're imagining a future where people have already abandoned technology as an end because already- the very abandonment thereof does not. So the same reason that the abandonment of technology as an end wouldn't automatically make Twitter and Facebook great. It would probably incline us to say Twitter and Facebook are terrible ideas as they stand. Let's stop that. Granted. And so it's quite conceivable to me that something like virtual reality, which tends to prioritize the remote and the, self-actualizing over the difficulties of what is immediately present around you might also be worth rejecting, not necessarily in a wholesale kind of way, but in the way that it it counters all those tendencies toward localism and subsidiarity we've just been I, dreaming about. I disagree. About. I disagree. <laughs> Here I disagree. we are, listeners. Here's, here's, here's why I disagree. Because I live in Phoenix, 
People don't tour to Phoenix because it's hard to get to. I already live in a situation where I don't get to see any of the live bands that I like. Mm -hmm. I go to about three shows a year. Listeners, my former career was managing bands (laughs) and reporting on bands. I used to go to more shows in two weeks than I have in the last year. And I would go to more even as an adult with children, but they just don't come here. So at one level, I'm already living in an experiment where by prioritizing certain types of non-transportation, we don't want to drive from Los Angeles to Phoenix and then from Phoenix to Dallas because that's a really hard drive. It is, I know. There are situations where we know there are other bands. We know there are other concerts happening. Like, for instance, I'm going to fly to San Francisco to see a concert that is not coming to Phoenix. So in that situation, we can either imagine that we've developed some sort of sustainable technology to allow us to travel other places, which defeats the purpose of localism. I don't think it does. I think that's another deep difference here is I don't think the ability to go and visit other places defeats the value of localism. I think it allows localism to be its best variety of itself in that it's not a localism that is a cloistering and a shutting off the rest of the world, but a localism that can embrace what here is and also allow there to be delightful, wonderful cross-pollination from the other here's in the world. Yes, but as we've learned with cross-continent travel, it makes hubs. It doesn't not make hubs. It doesn't suddenly prioritize local. And even if we stopped thinking about the the highly technologized, uh, let's call it a music festival, which is basically the outcome of, of technology and music, then that's a whole other long <laughs> conversation we can have. Um, but there are at least one book and one journal article that <laughs> argue in this direction. If we think about that, there's never going to be a festival of 40 bands from all over the world in these sorts of tiny cities, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 that we're thinking about. You can get smaller festivals. Uh, Norman Music Fest is like 11 or 12 or 13 years old now. And that city's only like 120,000 people. And they can usually get two or three national acts to show up and roll out for the main stage. And the rest of it is is filled with local stuff. I think this is a great model. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't replace the fact that if you want to go see a show, you go to Oklahoma City, up to Oklahoma City, you go down to Dallas in Norman, except if you want to go to the Opolis or some of the other local venues that are there. I love the Opolis. So I, I don't think that if we don't change human nature, that which we're not we, going to, which we're not going to, that we would stop wanting to see things that aren't possible to come to where you are. And if we're going to travel to where we are, where, where those things are, wouldn't it then make sense to just live there? And that's how you get in Los Angeles and New York and Austin and Nashville's because that's what happened. People were like, but I if also, people are already going to be there and it's already hard to travel there consistently, it's expensive and it's difficult. Why don't I just move there? Sure. And so I don't think that having faster travel would ameliorate that. Like, sure, if you can get from Los Angeles to Chicago in an hour, you're going to have a different experience than now. But I think that the way that you would change that 
and this is why I don't think virtual reality is that bad, especially if we're pushing out some of the negative ways that we've used technology to replace community. But Stephen, the medium is the message. But that's what I'm saying. The medium is the message. You can see stuff without leaving your place. Right. Which that's in, the in, point. Encourages all the worst behaviors of sitting in your house, you living your life through the internet. Yeah, but it also means <laughs> that you don't have to do this sort of like extend yourself all over the country because now you can. Like if 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 we had massive cross-continental travel when I was 21 years old, I would have been in five different cities in seven different days. I right. would have done it. There are That is not conducive to being local at all. And so I think that both of us are arguing that we can't still foresee a future with human nature involved that you can't see virtual reality being in a checked minor sort of way that isn't conducive to ruining localism. And I can't see human nature being checked in a way with easy cross-continental travel that wouldn't ruin localism. Like, why would I stay here in Phoenix if I could get to Los Angeles in a half hour? I would go to Los Angeles all the time. <laughs> Literally. Sure. Notably, I did not say anything about the speed of the transportation there. I talked about its sustainability. That's fair. I, I think... So I, I entirely understand and grant what you're getting at there. I think there are two things I'll say here. One is that I think both of these are real dangers, but that they are different in kind. Seems fair. And the second I will say is that I don't actually think it is bad for New York to be New York. I think it is bad for New York to be New York in the unsustainable ways that it is. But I think the existences of... New York and Nashville and LA are not themselves entirely bad things. I think, in fact, that there are goods in the existence of... This is me cringing. Yes, Stephen is cringing loudly. The way I like to put this to my friend Jake is to say that the Shire is good, and so is Gondor. So is Minas Tirith. So are the bignesses of those things. And so is Rohan and... It's distinctiveness, which is not like either of the other two. And to say that localism is good can include the localism of a large city flourishing in the ways that only large cities can. I think that's fair. And the flourishing of rural communities in the ways that only rural communities can. And that these things, we're not going to see this until eschatological realities are realized, but that the dream is of the, the small town to be able to look at the big city and not be threatened by it, and vice versa. The big city not to look at the small town with scorn, but for them both to look at each other and recognize that they offer goods that are distinct to them as unique places, and to recognize that the goodness of a metropolitan orchestra like the London Phil or the London Symphony or the Berlin Phil is not something that you will ever replicate in a town of 500 people, and that that's okay. They're distinct goods, and neither of them are in tension with localism inherently. They can be, and we should choose our tools for conviviality mm -hmm. accordingly. Yeah. We should think about what it would look like to have a healthy version of New York City, yeah. as well as a healthy version of 
Canarado, which is the very small town on the border of Kansas and Colorado that I have driven through many, many times and has a population of 500-ish, if I recall, or 1,000. It's not many people there. What would it look like for both of those things not to look at each other as some sort of enemy, but rather to embrace the kind of flourishing that is specific to the kind of place that they are? Now, what I see... I agree with that. But what I see with virtual reality is that if we're doing that, then one of the things that might be a flourishing of small cities and maybe even of big places is that they look at their thing and say, this is good and it is not all there is. Mm -hmm. And to say, we could get on a transportation object of varying speed, depending on how you and I think about it. But high sustainability. High sustainability. Leave for two days or three days or something, go off, and then come back. That's one way of thinking about flourishing. Like, travel is part of flourishing. Another way of thinking about it is saying, like, I wasn't going to be doing anything this evening anyway because I need some rest. Like, I'm going to go take in a show in Los Angeles via virtual reality. And you haven't stolen anything from your community in that you weren't already going out. I mean, for instance, I have two small children and I rarely go out anywhere. (laughs) That's a thing that happens. And so if I was able to use virtual reality to, without having to leave my house, go and do things and interact with people. And then like, if a small child says, Hey, I need to go to the bathroom for the millionth time, you can be like, Oh, let me just turn this off and go do this thing. So I think that it's not that that's an either or I can see your vision. And I think that there are excesses that are problematic that you don't think are as bad. And I think that you see excesses on my end that I don't think are as bad. And so I think that there's there's room for virtual reality to be part of flourishing in a way that is not does not take over everything about I don't want to live here anymore. I wish I'd live somewhere else, but to evaluate that like look, we have one of the best parks in the country. If you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you have one of the best parks in the country available to you. It's awesome. Uh you can go there. Um or You can go down to the river where there's plenty of things to do, or you could, through virtual reality, go to a Mountain Goats concert in Los Angeles. And I think that insofar as we still have individual preferences on our artistic uh, recreational devices, that, I don't know, it just seems like that's part of flourishing, that we're able to acknowledge what is good here, but also be able to say it's good there and be able to not have to leave to take it in. Maybe, maybe that's wrong. I, I hear what you're getting at. I, I think the difference is that I place a much higher value on the embodiment aspect of it. And that I think that one of the things that is most deleterious to us in our technocratic milieu, in our technologically mediated world is the lack of embodiment because to get sure. right down to brass tacks, as good as this is sitting across the internet from each other, and I'm glad we can do it versus not. Yeah, it's better than not. <laughs> it is not remotely the same as when we sit down across the table from each other in real life. That's true. And the fact that we can do this, as good as it is in many ways, makes us less likely to make choices in favor of being able to sit down across the table from people that matter to us. It makes us I don't think that's true. I think it does. I think it makes it less likely for us I flew to flew up I flew up to your place. <laughs> but you didn't choose to move back to Oklahoma when or to stay where you did your grad work. And yeah. neither did I. And our entire culture, I think, is a picture right now of the fact that having these technologies has liberated us 
at least made us feel liberated from much of the pressure uh, that is good pressure for us to be a walk away from people that we love, to be a a neighbor to people yeah. that are close to us, to be able I, to do those things. And so I think that's true. Being able to travel is different in kind. And this is what I was getting at with that first thing. Being able to travel to visit someone may have those negative externalities you were talking about. I don't I don't disagree. And I think those actually also contribute to everything I just said. But I think they differ in kind because there is a difference between being able to travel to see friends and stay with friends when you go see a concert and putting on the virtual reality thing. And I think that difference in kind matters in thinking about which of these we want more, if that makes sense. I No, it, it makes sense. I just disagree because I think that if we're granting a a sort of space where we've built these massively large numbers of smaller communities we just said earlier in the the piece that we that that's a thing that we could imagine right kind of i didn't assent to that because i don't actually see it playing out that way so much as that the shapes of cities themselves would change there would probably be some of that but i also think there would be a lot of cities regrowing themselves into new shapes. I t- <laughs> I live in Phoenix where the city is growing itself and it ain't going to grow anything except sprawl. Like there's not a whole lot of reason for Phoenix I I I will temper this, but <laughs> in an in an in an absolute sense, the reason Phoenix exists is because it's at the confluence of two rivers. Outside of that, there's not a whole lot of reason for Phoenix to exist. It's not attached to any particular sort of place that has benefits over other sorts of places, with the exception of its winters are not as cold as north. Does anywhere? Uh, I think that there are lots of places that have meaningful reasons to exist. Like, if you live on a coast, like, you live there because originally the cities were made there because there's an ocean there, and you can port things from back and forth, and you, you can go get fish and those sorts of things. That's about like living by the confluence of two rivers when you're in a desert. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that the only <laughs> reason that you do that in a desert is that, I mean... The only reason we can grow stuff in a desert is because we've irrigated a river. It's not like mm. rains here. Like it rained last night and we were amazed <laughs> that it finally rained. Barbara actually said, "You missed the rain like it was an event." But what I'm what I'm saying is that the types of places that we've put our cities are in themselves an extension of this idea of technological mastery. I largely agree with that statement. The reason Phoenix exists is because of technological mastery. To wit, it was tiny until we invented air conditioning in the 50s. Why? Because it would be horrible to live here without (laughs) air conditioning. But I think by the same token, the distribution of cities, even of the sort you would imagine, almost none of them would be in Arizona. If we relinquished a lot of that. Well, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm saying that if we actually imagine this future where this sort of thing is happening, there's going to be tons of cities up and down the Midwest. Rain's there a lot. Hopefully the climate (laughs) will have, you know, structurally changed. Trees have grown and we stop polluting the ocean, stuff like this. But the point that I'm trying to get is that we, the amount of technologies that we have make Phoenix, Phoenix, the 
types and thinking of technologies that we have put cities in various places that they are. And so if we decide that we're going to focus less on technology, if we're going to be not motivated by that technology, then the places that we put cities are going to change and the types of relationships those cities have to each other is going to to change. The reason that Phoenix and Los Angeles have a relationship at all is because they're the nearest cities to each other by a road. Like, technically, you can get to the ocean in the same amount of time you can get to Los Angeles, but we don't go to Puerto Penasco very often because it happens to be in Mexico. (laughs) And so there's a difference there. It's not any different of a reason, geographically speaking, that you should go to Los Angeles than Puerto Penasco, but there's city reasons, right? There's, There's technological road reasons that 40 is a thing that goes all the way across <laughs> the country and it doesn't go to Puerto Penasco. Right. So if we stopped doing that, saying we're going to Los Angeles because the road goes there, and we start thinking in other ways about technology, and we start thinking about other ways of doing cities and putting cities, I mean, people are already leaving New York City. Like, it's already a thing that people are doing. Now, mm-hmm. other people go to New York mm-hmm. City, so it's not like it's a total like evacuation, but it's a net <laughs> negative I just saw. <laughs> I just wanted to clarify. Alternative subtitle, people, the evacuation people, of New York City. People are not fleeing New York City at this exact moment. But I, I'm just, I just see a way where people, like cities at this scale would not exist. Phoenix would not be four and a half million people if we started thinking about technology differently. That's my that's my estimation. I think Phoenix might not, but I don't think that means that no city would. I think that's fair. Because the possibility of a, a city of four and a half million people on the East Coast is very, very different. Just climatologically. There actually aren't that many cities of four and a half million people on the East Coast. No, no, but it's it is possible for that to be sustainable without the exertion of technological mastery in a very, very different way where it rains. (laughs) I think think that's fair, but not at a bicycle scale, which is what we were talking about earlier. I think it probably would also entail a definition of city altering and expanding. I I think that's fair. I talked about that kind. I mean, you would have sprawl of a very different kind in that world. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree on that. That's the point at where we we both agree. But I think that that sprawl means that you would not, if we do have mass continental transit, <laughs> you it, it would be in a different relationship. And I'm not sure that we would prioritize being able to flip on over to Washington D.C. rather than you know having the ability to temporarily for an evening be there. For instance, if you already had all of your family around you and you already had all your friends around you because you were localized, you wouldn't have any friends in D.C. I don't think that's true either. I think that it's more a question of how the incentives would shift. I don't think we're going to stop knowing people via the Internet in 80 years. I don't I don't either. In the same way that 200 years ago, people knew each other by correspondence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm totally You might still not want to go off. visit them. And you might still want to enjoy the delights of their city precisely because of the ways it's not your city. And I think that's fair. But I, I, just, ha- I just don't think that in a non-technologically motivated type of world that we're imagining in this way, either – I mean, it's all speculation, so it's not uh, – the, the <laughs> no, next sentence – That's the point, right. The, the, next, the next sentence I was about to say makes no sense. But So I'm not going to say that one. But – 
I think it's a valid question to say whether we value local and regional enough, bicycle level local and regional enough Mm -hmm. to say, this is what we do and we go other places digitally or whether it is to say, this is what we do, but we travel other places because we we can leave for a day or a week or two weeks and go wherever we want to go. Those are two very different versions of localism. Mm-hmm. And and you think that one of them is noxious because of the ways that it has effects on local life, which is potentially true. And I think that if you have the ability to flip on over all over the country, that would have noxious effects as well. And so I think that charitably, both of these would would be – possible ways that humans could do things positively, we have to admit that both of them have potentials to be negative and that both of them are various types of potentials that could exist, that could be in a positive train of non-technologically focused thought, good, and in a non-way that we would like it to go, a technologically captive way, they would still just be very bad. I understand what you're saying. I think the main thing that I think is important in thinking about these things is to grant that there is a difference in kind there and that the difference in kind does matter. And maybe you're right and maybe I'm wrong about which one of those kinds is better or worse. Yeah, you're yeah, em- embodiment versus physical presence because mine you're physically present in your locality almost all of the time. Mm-hmm. Whether you're not actually mentally present because of virtual reality. Right. In yours, you are physically embodied wherever you go. It just could be anywhere. And and positively, I'm I'm not saying that like everyone's going everywhere all the time, but I'm saying that like in a positive vein, you say, yeah, it's good to go to DC and visit your friends for a week. Right. And then come back. And that doesn't have a detriment to localism. Right. Um, I live in a place where I actually find that that is extremely detrimental to localism. Like that's what happens to me every summer. And I'm bored out of my mind because all my friends leave for two months. So I actually have a different local situation now that makes me negatively think about that type of locality. And I fully grant the kinds of negatives you're getting at, but I think distinguishing those two ways of it does really, really matter. And the reason that I am so down in many ways on social media is that I think the lack of embodiment is one of the critical factors in social media being the way that it is. And so my reaction to something like a virtual reality mediated approach to things is that I don't think, I think it is less compatible with the kinds of worlds we're trying to imagine because I think embodiment is such an essential element of what it is that we have tended to try to replace with our technological mastery. I think that in many ways our approach to technological mastery is an approach that is all about eliminating the goodness of our limitations as we find them. And even if not the goodness at times, the reality of them and that merely trying to overcome it rather than trying to find ways, the bicycle to get back to the beginning of our conversation yeah, changes our relationship to the world around us, but in a way that does not dissociate us wholly from it the way an automobile does. It's not a closed shell that is totally disconnected from your own motion and your own physicality. And that's part of what makes a bicycle and a bicycle-structured city a more convivial place, as it were. Well, and and the fact that you can't go as far in a bicycle, which Which is not any relation 
to the bicycle itself, right? right? So you're saying like there are bounds to how far you can go on a bicycle and things mm-hmm. like this because of your human limitations. And I grant that. I think that's important. But I'm saying that I, I'm envisioning a future where virtual reality, the, the lack of embodiment is not the thing that people aspire to. Like no longer do we have people that aspire to the singularity. Right. I, I totally get all that. My, my argument is that the existence of that as a dominant thing tends that direction in the same way that automobiles tend in the direction of the kind of cities. And obviously well, yeah, but, we're not going to resolve this. But we're talking but about transportation. Like we are. If if the automobile is the problem, then like massive cross country transportation of any type, how how is that not the same? That is a very important question. And I think one of the factors at play there is to consider in the imperfect way that it is, nonetheless, that cities built around bicycles can also have trains that go to other cities, and that doesn't disrupt the conviviality of the local there. It it has consequences, but the two things can complement one another in in a way that still recognizes the goodness of the locality and still leans into the shape and structure of the local. And I, I think that's I think that's true at an ideal forum. But like in Europe in the 1800s, they would like go to the country for like three months and then go back to their regular life because it was like a thing to get on a train and go out there. And then you would do that because not because like they couldn't have gone on a bicycle or in a car, but like the train allowed them to do that. Yes, like absolutely. More people than used to, because some people did actually just take coaches out to the city. <laughs> Hello, Jane Austen novels. Right. And this is why I said I fully grant the point that you were making. I'm simply trying to draw clear the distinction between yes. the two and why I differ on them. And I think that's fair. The The point being, I don't, you see embodiment as the critical part of what is wrong with social media. What I think is wrong with social media, and I grant that embodiment is fully a part of it. It is that there are no consequences. And I think that there are, there, these are related in that the lack of embodiment leads to lack of consequences. But I imagine a space, and I can imagine a space, that you, things you do have consequence even in an unembodied state, and then you would want to do them less if you were consequenced. Because this is part of what's wrong with Twitter and social media as a general overarching whole is that we can't get them to do even normative levels of saying, no, that's bad. We can't do that yet. We're trying and they refuse. Right. Like, And so I think that, yes, embodiment is part of it. And I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm saying that if we change the structure in which we did this lack of embodiment and we didn't do it all the time and our culture wasn't set up so that we wanted to do it all the time, that there are ways that you could do it that were meaningful and actually enhanced people's experience of living locally because instead of like disappearing for two weeks to go do something or disappearing for three days or five days, like I'm going to do to go see the mountain goats in San Francisco, you could disappear for an evening and be totally satisfied. Now, granted, virtual reality versus embodiment of a concert, there's lots of stuff about that. Yes, no, other. And I grant that entirely. I'm just saying from my perspective, I think that part of the problem that we have with embodiment is lack of consequences. And if we change that, embodiment would change, disembodiment would change, et cetera. I understand all of that. I think that we also probably differ, not even probably, we do differ in 
some of the arrows of causality in play here in the sense that I think that the media themselves tend to incentivize and tend to create structures that then lead people further this way. And I would, well, yeah, I mean, I would argue does too, but right. Exactly. Like exactly. Everything does, but so would cross continental travel. So would everything that's it's, to argue that is true. It's in inescapably true, but I don't mind the angles that this goes on and you do. Right. And the reasons I do have to do with the distinction we've drawn out here, because yeah. I also think that virtual reality being everywhere present would undermine the other kinds of things that we're arguing for in a way that you don't seem, from what I'm gathering, to share that. I don't. Yeah. Now, I grant that those are possible. Mm-hmm. I'm not granting that they're not. Like, I'm not totally optimistic to that extent. But I think that there's a place for it. And I think part of the challenge in this, I'll summarize maybe what we've been at here, is part of the hard work, and therefore I think why this is a valuable exercise and a very valuable argument, is that getting at the kind of future that we've been trying to get at requires thinking about that, requires asking what comes out of sustainable, effective cross-country transportation. At the end of the day, maybe you're right, and maybe I'm wrong about that. And what comes out of continuing to embrace technologies that enable disembodied experiences of the world in a way that first the telegraph and then the telephone and then the movie theater and then the television have increasingly done. And in a way that virtual reality would certainly, certainly amplify. We we need to have that conversation. We need to imagine that world and imagine what are the goods? What are the bads? How do they play? How do they trade? How do they cut against the kinds of things that we want to see? Is this genuinely compatible or not with a non-technocratic milieu? And if it is, in what ways and under what constraints? And so to repeat the plea that I put out to all of you at the beginning two episodes ago now, we need art that does this. We need people out there writing songs and making movies and writing books and making plays and doing all the things we do that ask these questions and interrogate these things in the context of a world where they try to imagine virtual reality in the kind of constraints that Steven thinks are possible. And I don't. And maybe you prove me wrong. Maybe you change my mind by way of that art. And maybe you change the course we're on a little bit by painting a world in which people have, but are not slaves to virtual reality and can keep it in the right bounds. Yeah, and maybe, and maybe you change Stephen's mind by showing him pictures of how horrible it is and how it always goes wrong and it's dystopic in every way. Or, or maybe <laughs> you can write stories that's better than the beginning of Ringworld, which shows the dead end of interworld travel at immediate speed <laughs> in that it's just really bad. It goes really badly. It does, and so it does go very bad. In that book. And so if you wrote a better story that made me think, oh, yeah, that would be fine. And I think that one actually might work really well in the context of this thing. Then, like, I'd be willing to believe it. But, man, it's real bad at the beginning of that novel. And in other novels I have seen, it doesn't get a whole lot more better. So, we're ready for that. Hit us up. The music at the beginning of the episode was used with permission Please don't use it without permission. Thanks, as always, to all of our sponsors, including, of course, Nathaniel Blaney, who's at the We Shout You Out on Every Episode tier. Thanks. 
And to those of you who've chosen to contribute anonymously, to all of you, we continue to appreciate your support. You can sponsor us at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you want to reach out to us, you can hit us up at email, hello at winningslowly.org. You can also do Twitter at us, winning slowly <laughs> at Scaradini. And uh, theoretically, you can also reach us on Facebook, but it's slow. So there you go. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>